0: Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken.
1: All right, it's six o'clock. We can get started here. (laughs) Welcome everyone to Strength to Strength this morning. Appreciate you getting up early to participate in this meeting. My name is Sam Bear, and I come to you from Boston, Massachusetts. I'm actually from Cochrane, Alberta, but I'm down here for the winter. Um, studying at Salar College. And this morning, we have Brother Ryan Hoover coming to us from Virginia. Um, before we get started with that, let's pause for a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, most gracious one, we come to you this morning. We thank you, Lord, that you are here with us this morning and that we are your children and that you love us. Thank you for the provision of Jesus Christ and his uh, life and work here on earth and death on the cross and resurrection thank you that through the work of christ we can be made new and have our old hearts transformed into hearts of flesh that can be sensitive to those around us sensitive to the needs of the world just pray lord that this meeting this morning would be a blessing to your kingdom here on the earth and that each one of us would be challenged in our walk with Christ and how we think about the world. I just pray that you would be with Brother Ryan as he delivers his message this morning. Um I pray that you you would anoint his lips so that your name could be praised in all that is said. Be with us today and may your spirit protect us from the evil one. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, go ahead, uh brother Ryan and give us a bit of an introduction to who you are and where you're from and Any pertinent details?
2: All right. Well, good morning.
0: I'm Ryan Hoover. I uh, was born and raised in Northwest Ohio as unaffiliated Mennonite and eventually got married. And, um, my wife was a nurse at that point and I got, uh, got bit by the nursing bug and pulled into nursing. We lived in Rochester, Minnesota for nine years. I went through nursing school there, became a nurse, worked in long-term care, nursing homes, um, eventually did hospice nursing, which is still my favorite kind of nursing. It's still my passion. End-of-life care is, I think, the best nursing someone could do. And eventually worked in the hospital at Mayo Clinic there in Rochester, in 2018, we were asked to come to Mountain View and become the administrator here. <clears throat> so in October of 18, we moved here to Mountain View Nursing Home in Northern Virginia. We're just north of Charlottesville, Virginia, about an hour and a half outside D.C. And we've been here since. Um, I'm the administrator of the nursing home here. Mountain View is a small 40-bed, long-term care nursing home. We specialize in in stage dementia and end-of-life care. Of my residents this morning, only a handful can walk or talk. <clears throat> and by virtue of being long-term care only, we do not do any short-term care. Um Grandma falls and breaks a hip and needs rehab. That's not us. Um We are not certified to take Medicare. The programs that pay for that care, we are Medicaid only. So it's rare we discharge anyone to somewhere other than a funeral home. The vast majority of our residents will die here with us. We're owned and operated by Oak Grove Mennonite Church, a local beachy church a mile and a half down the road. And the most interesting thing about Mountain View is that we're run by volunteers. About 80% of my workforce are volunteer youth. And so we sit on an 80-acre campus. I have... 40 volunteers in the dorms, I have 40 residents in the nursing home, and then I have five <clears throat> administrative families with their associated children. So we have a campus of about 120 people. It is a, uh, a real community or commune or compound or colony or whatever other word you'd like to use for it. I support here as the administrator, like I say, I've been here for just under four years. I know today's discussion is going to be unpalatable to some. We've had to make choices the past two years, two and a half years dealing with COVID that some people have deeply disagreed with, and I have no desire to stir up controversy this morning. I'm simply here to share my story and my perspective. Talking about leadership this morning, lessons in leadership, crisis leadership specifically, um... These are the lessons I've learned. Now, some of you on here, I see John and Tony and a few of you that have been in leadership a whole lot longer than I. These might not be lessons to you. And you may say, well, what a rube. You should have known that. Um, But this is where I am. So three trees and a computer bug. What does that have to do with anything? Well, October, October, August 14th, 2003, 19 years ago, was a very hot, still day. Northwest Ohio, the power grid was loaded. Air conditioners were running hot, running heavy. And the power grid is much more complex than I realized. And interconnected and webs of power companies and supply and demand. And there was a computer program whose job it was to monitor conditions and forecast. If this were to happen, could we handle it? If that were to happen, what would happen next? That computer system was offline that August day, but people didn't know it. As things warm up, if you're well familiar with science, most things expand, power lines included. And because it was a hot still day and there was no wind to keep the power lines cooler, One line expanded and sagged enough that it touched a tree, shorted out. Well, there are systems to protect this, and a relay tripped. Well, that overloaded other lines carrying the load. But because that computer system was offline, the operators did not realize this. A while later, a second line sagged into a tree, tripped, And overloaded other systems. And again, I'm broadly overgeneralizing this. Eventually a third line sagged and tripped a relay. And this was in the Akron, Ohio area. But within about three minutes, 55 million people, eight states in the province of Ontario were in the dark. It was the biggest power outage in U.S. history. New York City residents for the first time saw the Milky Way. This caused all manner of cascading failures. For example, loss of water pressure in systems triggers a boil water advisory. Communications were shut down. Entire airports were shut down. Loss of pumps and pumping stations meant raw sewage was discharged into rivers. At one chemical plant, A considerable release of toxic chemicals in Michigan was released into a river. It's been blamed for at least directly 100 deaths and cost $10 billion.
2: Well, in March
0: of 2020, our disaster hit. COVID-19 locked down nursing homes by the order of CMS at Centers for Medicare Medicaid, where we get 85% of our funding. So in short, we're Medicaid, Medicaid certified. The easiest way to say it is we'll take your money in exchange for caring for your poor people by following your rules. So we were mandated many things. We shut down visitation. And, again, a whole cascade of clinical changes here at the nursing home. These also brought changes in the way we live here on campus as well. For the most part, we followed CDC recommendations. Uh We had a choir tour with our volunteers two weeks later. We canceled that. Our staff and families quit traveling. Our campus became basically a family bubble. We worked with the local sheriff. During lockdown, I explained our situation to him. He said, basically, consider your campus one family. You're fine. It was sort of our cozy little enclave here. We had our own church services. We've got a volleyball court. We've got plenty of food. We've got things to do. We sort of huddled down here on campus. And if you had to live through lockdown in March and April and May of, of 2020, Mountain View wasn't a terrible place to be. We had support, infrastructure, people. There were plenty of disappointments, yes. But that was universal. You all had those as well. So initial lockdown was not terrible, but as things wore on, the pain increased. We had our first case of COVID here in September of 20. Ten days later, on September 11th, we had our first major outbreak, which put all of our leadership in quarantine all three of us executive leaders and my entire clinical leadership team were all in quarantine on that day. Three days later, we had our first catastrophic outbreak. 25 people out of my staff of 70, only a third were in quarantine. A day after that, I was hospitalized with a septic leg infection. September of 20 To January of 21 is five months of darkness around here. It was brutal. We had 31 positive staff in that time. We've had many more since, but during that time, 31 of our staff were positive. We had nine positive residents. We had one resident death. Now, why we didn't have more positive residents and more residents die, I don't know. It's but the goodness of God. When I talk to other nursing homes, there's a Weaverlandron assisted living facility in Pennsylvania that 100% of their residents got COVID and 50% of them died, fully half. I talked to an administrator in Richmond last week that 100% of her building of 180 or something like this got COVID and many died. Why it didn't happen here, I don't know. It's the grace of God. It's the goodness of God. In in looking at things the most critical factor of how a resident, a nursing home did in COVID was community spread. It wasn't their five-star rating. It wasn't their quality metrics. It wasn't their funding. It wasn't whether or not they were profit or nonprofit. It was the community rates around them. But through those dark days, it was ugly. All staff and residents were tested twice a week. All contacts were quarantined for a full 14 days. Repeatedly, staff would travel and come back exposed and sick and expose other people. During those five months, we had 800 shifts that we had to cover with somebody else. The person supposed to work that was in quarantine, and we had to cover it other ways. It was a daily grind. It was difficult in the extreme to try to cover shifts. Our scheduler begged any former staff uh, who was able to come back and work for us. Mandatory testing, reporting, screening, symptom management, managing housing for the quarantined, other housing for the isolated, for the infected. The people in quarantine were bored. We took them sewing machines, we took them laptops so they could catch up on all their required routine education. We delivered supplies and meals around campus. As soon as this person was out of quarantine, we needed that housing for that person. It was an incredible amount of work to care for 40 residents, like always. But now, all these other people in quarantine and isolation. I know of
2: no other word to use than brutal.
0: We've had several other smaller outbreaks since But with further knowledge and, as importantly, further rules change from CMS, CDC, and Virginia Department of Health, more recent outbreaks have been much more manageable. But in short, it was the most difficult two and a half years of my life by far. So lessons from disaster leadership. And these are in no particular order. But number one, disaster preparedness is not glamorous. Many people don't see the the value of disaster preparedness. Mennonites in general aren't big on this. At times we even scorn it and take on this air of superiority. We don't need that. We'll just do what's right in the moment. And there's some truth in that, but there's some fallacy in that. Disaster preparedness is critically important because without it, people die. Right now, where you live... Your state, your county has disaster plans that you benefit from and you'd be really miserable without, even if you aren't aware of them. In a nursing home, a significant portion of time and money go to disaster preparedness. It's one of the significant portions of my job. Every week, our generator tests. Every month, we have fire drills. We have quarterly sprinkler inspections. We have to do two disaster drills a year. Every year, we have to inspect the fire doors. Every three three years, we have to do a load bank test to have a generator company come out and put our generator under load. That was about two weeks ago. It's a ginormous electric toaster, effectively, and he was pulling 624 amps on our generator and simply turning it into heat in this big heater box. Every five years, we replace certain parts of the sprinkler system, and we do all this all for things I really hope I never need. Daily preparation and diligence are critical. Had the men responsible for trimming those trees in Akron, Ohio. I don't know if it was failure. or I I don't know. I'm not here to assign any blame, but had those trees been trimmed differently, that power outage would have looked different. January 3rd and 4th of this year. We lost power for two days because of a snowstorm. It was 20 degrees outside. Well, the moment the power went off, three seconds later, my generator automatically is online producing power. Well, suddenly I was really glad for that generator. Suddenly I cared about that generator. Suddenly I cared about how much fuel was in the tank and that there was quality fuel in the tank because I had residents whose health and well-being was dependent on that generator. Over the next 2 days I spent hours making plans and phone calls of what do I do if that generator stops? Do we evacuate? How difficult is going to be to get a replacement generator? The entire region was without power. This county was 75% dark, Louisa County across the way at one point was 100% without power. What am I going to do? Well, Because of that day, those two days, I now have plans and options, and I know of resources I didn't know then. Disaster preparedness is important, and we have to prepare before the storm. Number two, communication is critical. I've learned the hard way that in disaster, you have to over-communicate. Because people, particularly when they're scared, tend not to think very clearly. They tend to get less than you think they should. They tend not to hear what is said to them. And when things are going badly, less information is not necessarily a better thing. I've bungled this many times. Saying too much gives rise to fear. In the early days of COVID, we didn't know what we were dealing with. I was reading reports of other nursing homes and morbidity and mortality cases and statistics and advice from authorities. And statistically, my residents are among the most vulnerable. They are in their last days of life on a good day. Very little disease would take to take them on to eternity. And so I was quite frank with our staff about what could happen. But when I said what could happen, some people heard this is what will happen. And someone told me later, well, Ryan said residents would die. That never happened. So clearly he doesn't know what he's talking about. So saying too much about what could happen, well, came back to bite us. However, saying too little gives rise to all sorts of unhealthy speculation. One of my staff said, if you give us generalities, we will make up our own specifics. We can tend to assume the worst. One of my staff about a year ago during the hostage crisis in Haiti, after CAM released one of their statements, they made the comment, well, they didn't say they're sure they're all alive, so that must mean they're dead. I said, no, that just means they're not positive, they're all alive. But this person instantly went to, they must be dead. Second, we have to aim for transparency. People don't need to know everything, but they need to know the how and why. With every staff positive case, our leadership team would meet at this conference table, do contact tracing, figure out who was exposed, who needed to be quarantined. After that meeting, there were multiple reports I had to file. Many people I had to notify, documentation, Linford had to rewrite schedules, My wife and our deans would have to manage housing, who's going to live where for the next two weeks. But one night, we met to start this process, and on the other side of the wall of this conference room is our dining room, our staff dining room, and there's this foldable wall between here and there, and that particular evening, staff were in the dining room playing games. And somehow, I don't remember how or why, but the wall got opened up, and so... A handful of these staff had a front row seat to our, to our meeting. And they saw the negotiations and the back and forth and the scribblings on the whiteboard and the lists of people and their levels of exposure and who did what with whom and who sleeps in which dorm and who is exposed to who by what. And okay, who had the most resident contact? What level of risk is this going to carry? It's a significant meeting. And afterward, The one staff said she had no idea the detail we considered in that. She said it had always looked somewhat random and capricious as to who got put in quarantine and who didn't. And after seeing the consideration and the nuance and everything that factored into our decisions, she had a new respect for those decisions. We wished we had shown that process to our staff earlier. Be transparent enough that people know the how and why of your decisions. Know your audience. It's been said that every joke has three components, content, audience, and timing. And if you mess up any of them, the joke's going to fall flat. Crisis communication is much the same, content, audience, and timing. Know your audience. We're a healthcare facility. We use 24-hour time. Now, for most of you this morning, you probably don't use 24-hour time, and so in dealing with you, I try to remember that, and I try to say 5 o'clock instead of 1,700, but as a nurse, I've been trained in this, required to use it. It's the standard of healthcare, and as much as I want my staff to use it, I know that outside of this campus, very few Anabaptists use it, and some even mock it. Know your audience. Our health department epidemiologist, his name's Daniel Farrell. He and I became very good friends through this time. When I talk to Daniel, I know that he has different concerns and different thought process processes than when I'm talking to a minister from my church, Mike Yoder. Know your audience. Communication in crisis is critical. Number three. Leaders aren't going to be popular. This is hard for me because by personality or carnality or something, I have this drive to be liked. I I want you this morning to like me and agree with me and support me. But leaders aren't going to be popular. People aren't going to understand. No matter what you decide, some people won't agree. There are people in my own church, the church that owns this facility, by the way who said, just skip the COVID regulations, be done with it, say it's over, stop everything today. Well, they didn't understand. They don't understand because they can't. They can't understand because they aren't sitting in your chair. I have a degree in nursing, nine years in healthcare. I look at infectious diseases differently than a block mason. And there's no way in one conversation I can convince a block mason of my perspective, nor will I understand his. I'm responsible for the regulatory compliance of a $4 million nursing home. I see government regulation different than a rural furniture builder, for example. I have multiple years of experience with government interaction at various levels, from Red Cross and disaster response in Minnesota to compliance here. I don't view government with nearly the suspicion that most Anabaptists do. And perhaps I need more, and perhaps some of the rest of them need less. But it's unfair to expect people to always agree with leadership, no matter how badly I want them to. It's been really, really genuinely difficult for me to let go of this. Because, again, my personality, I'm just... Deeply convinced automatically that with enough data, if I give you enough information, eventually you will come around to see the truth like I do. It's been hard for me to realize that that's not going to happen. It's hard for me to realize that no matter what, some people will never agree with me. Even if I happen to be completely right and they happen to be completely wrong, some people aren't going to agree with me. I mean, for example, the Flat Earth Society still exists. There's not a shred of evidence. But the Flat Earth Society still exists. Quinn Bissonnette was a manager I worked with at Mayo Clinic. And he said, if you want to be popular, give away ice cream cones. If you want to be a leader and make a difference, that's something else entirely.
2: And that truth has been difficult for
0: me to internalize. If you want to be popular, give away ice cream cones. If you want to make a difference and be a leader, that's going to be something different. We had to make unpopular decisions. For example, routine testing of all staff and residents. Nobody enjoyed our twice-weekly testing. It took about 20 man hours each time. Each testing event, twice a week, cost me about $10,000. In the year 2020 alone, I spent almost $300,000 through UVA labs. It's a chunk of change for testing I didn't want to do, most of it. Nobody enjoys wearing a mask. We didn't enjoy it back then. We don't enjoy it today. But guess what? We're still in healthcare Right now, back on the floor, my staff are still wearing masks. Out here later in the offices, we'll still be masked because it's the regulation and we're required to do it. See, if democracy was good enough, we wouldn't need leadership. And unless I'm sitting in the room and facing the pressure and the consequences and carrying the responsibility, I can't possibly fully understand the pressure my leaders are under. And I want this to generate in me a bit more support for my leaders, our church leaders through COVID. They had different responsibilities than I did. They're going to look at COVID differently than I do. Our civil leaders, government leaders, they had different responsibilities than me. They had different pressures than me. They had different tools than I did. They're going to look at things differently than me. It's been said that if engineers and designers do a great job, nobody knows they're involved. Stuff just works. Doors work and traffic flows and lights work. You never think about the person who worked on the design of that, which is kind of sad when you get no credit for your best work. Public health is even worse, though. Public health people will tell you that if public health does a great job, not only do they not get credit, they get scorned. Well, that wasn't such a big deal. I don't know why they made such a big deal about that. It wasn't a big deal because we made such a big deal about it. The better job public health does, the more they get scorned. The other part of the joke is if public health does their job bad enough, you still don't know about it because you're dead, but that's the joke. so the next time you want to criticize the cDC, remember that you don't understand what they're trying to accomplish. you don't see the picture that they see. I want this to generate in me more humility toward my leadership when the church makes decisions I don't understand I have to under- I have to remember. I wasn't in the room. I'm not facing the pressure that they're facing. I'm not facing the consequences they're facing. If you want to be popular, give away ice cream cones. If you want to be a leader and make a difference, that's going to be something else entirely. Number four, leadership comes in surprising packages. During that power outage of August 2003, Toronto was one of the cities that was totally dark including traffic lights a man whose name i can't find simply drove his car up on the curb stepped out into the intersection and started directing traffic eventually police came along gave him a vest and a bottle of water and said good job keep it up and he stood there and directed traffic for hours it wasn't on his calendar that day he just did it he wasn't trained
2: He wasn't asked. He wasn't paid. He just did it. Not all leadership is official.
0: Early on, when our entire clinical leadership team went into quarantine, my director of nursing, Leroy, grabbed our night nurse, Sheldon, and just deputized him as DON for the next two weeks. Leroy was leaving the building, going into quarantine, He said, Sheldon, it's yours. You have the skills. You know what you're doing. The place is yours. Make it work. Sheldon became a lifesaver. Some new regulation, some new practice change. Okay, we're going to have to do it this way now. He and his night shift would figure it out. The night of our first positive resident, we deployed PAPRs for the first time. That's a powered air purifying respirator. Basically, it's a belt and a fan and a filter on the belt an air tube up the back, and then this hood that supplies you with a constant supply of fresh filtered air. These are expensive gadgets that we had invested thanks to the CARES Act funding, thanks to you taxpayers, we appreciate it. Um, because of us that have facial hair can't pass a fit test on an N95. And because we are a beachy organization, we had made the commitment we were not going to require people to shave, Um, they could voluntarily. And most of our guys said, you know, come that day, sure, I'll shave. But we had decided to pursue these papers since we had 10 of them ready to go. Again, disaster preparedness, because the night you need them, you won't be able to buy them. I came in at midnight, trained Sheldon and the night crew, checked off their competency papers, and said, I'm going home for a couple hours of sleep. I'll be back at 5 to train in the day crew. When I came back at five o'clock, you know, a few hours later, Sheldon had things set up. He had brought up tables from the basement. He had sanitizing stations set up. He had place for hoods. He had shelves. He had uh, everything set up. He was ready to go. He and his night crew had done a whole bunch of work. Leadership always isn't always official. And just because you don't have the corner office or carry the official title, doesn't preclude you from leadership. Just step out into the chaos and direct traffic. Bring order in chaos. Leadership comes in surprising packages. Just step out and start directing traffic. Number five, and this is one of the harder ones for me to talk about. Harlan's razor says, never attribute to malice what can be explained by ignorance or misunderstanding. Basically, don't take things personally, even though it will most certainly feel that way. For example, multiple of our staff tried to get infected. Because in those days, once you had recovered from COVID, you had basically had a 90-day pass where you weren't tested and wouldn't be quarantined if you were exposed. And so some of these staff had been quarantined multiple times for exposures. And so it looked really tempting to them. Let me just get infected, and then I'll be have a 90-day pass. And we pled with them not to. You don't know the consequences. Don't do it. Multiple
2: staff tried. It felt like a kick in the face. When the one messaged me and told me what they and three of their friends had done, I stood on my front porch and bawled like a baby.
0: It felt like everything we were trying to do in protecting our staff and, more importantly, protecting our residents
2: was in vain. It was worthless. I
0: walked in the house. I told my wife. And she burst into tears. And She said, all that we're working for isn't worth the paper it's printed on. These were in the days, in addition to being a full-time mom, she was also acting as our staff infection preventionist. Some of those weeks, she put in 30 hours
2: on her time card. It
0: felt incredibly personal. It felt like a personal assault. And it took me a long time to realize that the staff weren't trying to hurt me. It wasn't personal.
2: It felt like it.
0: But they assured me it wasn't. In conversation since, they said they didn't realize the burden it put other people under. They didn't realize the actual consequences. They didn't realize the potential consequences. I didn't realize how inviting it looked to them. It was ignorance and misunderstanding, not malice. There was a video interview of a conservative man that stated how he and his people had done many things completely the opposite of recommendation or of mandates and laws. He went on to brag how they made more money during COVID than ever before. He was rather derisive about things that I was required to do. And he finished up the interview saying he thinks they were smarter than everybody else. When I saw that, I wept. I cried. It felt like a punch in the face. I'm part of the same Group of people is this man bragging how he's made lots of money by defying the law, bragging how he's smarter than everybody else. I became convicted I had to forgive him. And I had to realize that he wasn't being malicious toward me. He doesn't even know my name. He doesn't know me. He was speaking from his perspective, a perspective I don't understand. But He was speaking from his perspective. And he doesn't understand my perspective or my responsibilities. He had no malicious intent toward Ryan Hoover.
2: It was ignorance and misunderstanding. And I
0: had to realize I can't take that personally. Don't assume malice where it may well be ignorance and misunderstanding. Number six, submit to your authorities. In times of crisis, this becomes even more important. I was always supported by our board. I'm deeply grateful. Many times I had to submit to things I didn't like. But as much as it's hard to admit it, I found a certain measure of peace knowing I was under authority. My board chair assured me many times you won't hang alone. If this goes badly, you're not going to hang alone. We will stand with you every step of the way. It was hard to hear, it was hard to trust, because it's my license that hangs on the wall out there. It's part of the journey I've been on to learn to trust. But Romans 13 is clear, earthly authority is from God. It's for our good. And they that resist will receive damnation. Even if that authority is imperfect. Because imperfect authority is the only kind we have. Outside of God, imperfect authority is the only kind we get.
2: Christ commanded us to go the second mile.
0: If you think about that, that means carrying what we think was a 70-pound pack two miles the wrong direction. The only way you could meet a Roman soldier was if you were going one way and he was going the other. So if he's going to carry... If he's going to make you carry his pack two miles, you're going the wrong direction. This is going to cost you four miles to serve an oppressive, heathen,
2: foreign government. And Christ said, do it.
0: And do it with a good attitude. I'll admit, I've had to carry many packs the last two and a half years, and often without the greatest attitude. Now, be clear, I'm not talking open and direct sin here. But even in decisions and authorities I disagree with, I can rest if if I'm in submission to my authority. Our church did things I didn't agree with. I had to submit to that authority. There are things
2: we're doing now that I don't think are the best. But I've been asked to submit and leave it in God's hands. And the
0: truth is he can work in ways that I can't. And so God can bless submission to imperfect authority because at the end of the day, imperfect is all we get. Number seven is do what's right regardless of apparent cost. When the right way is clear, decisions are much easier i found decisions are orders of magnitude more difficult when I'm not confident of what I'm doing. I I told staff many times, if I was 100% confident this is the right way, it'd be far easier. But the fact is, I don't know if this is right. We're not certain what's going to happen here. We're doing the best we can, but
2: we don't know how this is going to turn out.
0: When our values are clear, decisions are much easier. I've been on a quest here at Mountain View to delineate and codify our values. We have to define them and then commit to them. And we've been here 60 years. We were founded in 1962. We've never wrestled through and codified and delineated exactly this is what we value. I've been working with our board on this. It's a time-consuming process. This is not the work of one board meeting. And some people will push back and say, why do we need to do this? Why do we need to codify our mission, vision, and values? Why why do we need to go through that work? That's just silly. Just do the right thing. How do we determine what the right thing is if we haven't decided what it is most important to us or what's most valuable? I saw this in a way I'll never forget when I was working at Mayo Clinic. CNN had published a three-part series about Mayo Clinic, accusing them of various things, including medical kidnap, published the details of a very difficult case, and slanted things. Some things were factually inaccurate. Some things lacked context. But of course, they, they published their story with their, with their spin. Mayo published a response, what they could, given HIPAA privacy laws, and it went back and forth for a while. And I was at a staff meeting one day, and after the staff meeting, I mean, at the end of the staff meeting, with Q&A time, somebody spoke up and asked the vice president, Jeff Bolton, why don't, why doesn't Mayo sue CNN for defamation? Vice President Jeff Bolton said, I knew that question would come up, so I've asked our chief legal counsel to be with us today. Turned the podium over to him. Mayo Clinic's head lawyer stood up. He said, there's nothing I like better than a good lawsuit. I'm a lawyer. I eat them for breakfast. He said, but defamation is really hard to prove, and defamation lawsuits are really hard to win. He said, we aren't sure we've been damaged that much. And he went through some of the polling they had done. And X many percent of the people they polled hadn't even heard of the story. And those that had heard of it, those that found it to be unfavorable at Mayo and changed their opinion, well, you know, most of those said that Mayo's response satisfied them. And so you go all through all the numbers. He's like, we really don't think it's hurt our credibility and reputation that much. And so a defamation lawsuit would be really hard to win. But then he said, all of that is nothing compared to my last point. He said, what is our primary value? And everyone in the room responded, the needs of the patient come first. This is deeply ingrained in Mayo Clinic culture. Every employee knows it from day one. You will hear it frequently. The needs of the patient come first. He leaned forward. He said, would a lawsuit serve the needs of this patient? Is it in her best interest to be drug into court and testify and back and forth? And Would a lawsuit serve the needs of this patient? Would a lawsuit serve the needs of our other one million patients this year?
2: The room was silent. He said, and for that reason, ladies and gentlemen, there will be no lawsuit. Everyone in the room understood
0: and supported the decision because it came straight from an accepted value. Their values were clear. The decision was clear. I found that the times we caved into pressure for an easier road were the times we regretted. One time we fudged our testing time to avoid consequences because this happened 48 hours before. So let's wait till tomorrow morning to test. It backfired. We tried to monkey with a gray area. Well, okay, if we do it this way, we'll see. It's kind of a gray area. We We regretted it. The times we gave in to pressure because we were just too tired
2: and exhausted to hold the line, we regretted it. When my values are clear, even the hardest decisions are easier. Follow your values
0: regardless of the seemed cost. And my last point, number eight, is leaders are lonely. And again, this has been one of the harder ones for me to learn and digest. By virtue of position, you can't let your guard down. You're always on duty. This week was camp week here, where we bring in 24 extra volunteers, many of them siblings of our current staff. And they clean the place from top to bottom, end to end, and it's a giant, busy, chaotic week with again about a fifty percent increase in volunteers on campus. and These are young and energetic, and Thursday night is volleyball tournaments, and it's staff against against campers, and it's intense, and the pressure's on, and somewhere from the activities department, they drug out a bag of pom-poms and and there's there there's cheering on the sidelines and there's some smack talk and i mean it's it's a rich and intense game well even the administrator gets into this sometimes and thursday night i'm standing there on the sidelines and the guy beside me is shaking his pom pom he's on the cheering for the campers of course i'm cheering for staff And I watched and waited for my opportunity. I reached over, stole his pom-pom, and went running. This guy is considerably smaller than I am. Anyway, got around to the other side of the court, tossed the pom-pom to one of my staff. He grabbed one of theirs. We tussled on the ground,
2: had a great time. Guess
0: what video has been circulated and put on the camper chat and sent to parents, etc. The administrator cutting up on the side of a volleyball court. Not all the staff. No, they were doing it all night too. But we got lots of mileage out of the administrator doing it. Well, oh, then we added sound effects of like a dirt bike. <laughs> By virtue of leadership, everything I do
2: is scrutinized more closely. You're always on duty.
0: As a leader, you're always on display. You're never off the clock. And again, to those of you in leadership, that's old news. It's been hard for me to adjust to. No matter what you do, the organization is judged by you. And that increases pressure as well. But leaders are lonely. During my training here in 2019, after our annual inspection, I gave a gift basket to my boss, Trent Clugston. He sat there at his desk in tears. He said no one has ever done that for him. No one's ever said thank you for a good inspection. He said that's one of the hard parts you'll learn of leadership is the loneliness.
2: I've learned you can't do it alone. You have to be humble enough to be cared
0: for, and that's difficult. For a proud guy like me, that's difficult. At my lowest point in April of 21, I had an emotional breakdown. I couldn't quit crying. After the fact, that I found out that my wife was ready to call my director of nursing and say, come pick him up. I need help. He's not okay. I had to be willing to get help. It was incredibly hard because I'm the leader.
2: I'm not allowed to collapse. Leaders don't call in sick. I had to be willing to get help.
0: Find somebody to talk to. Everybody needs someone that they can talk to without fear. You need somebody that you can be honest with
2: and show them the real you.
0: You need to care for other people. They need it. You might see your leaders faltering, struggling, and sobbing you might not they may cover it up they may compensate really really well but leadership needs your help
2: i was barely holding it together and jeff kennege our
0: campus pastor at the time the day i couldn't quit crying said you're not okay are we going to talk about it tonight or tomorrow morning and it was his directness that got my attention. It wasn't, is everything okay? It wasn't, do you want to talk about it?
2: It was statements. You're not okay. And the choice was, do you want to talk tonight or tomorrow?
0: He was pretty direct. Be willing to step up and say, you're not okay. Be willing to support your leadership. <clears throat> Part of what makes pediatric medicine Much more difficult is that babies compensate well. They can be very ill and not look sick. Their compensatory mechanisms work really, really well until they don't. And when babies crash, they crash hard and they crash fast. And that's why medicine is always more conservative and cautious with children. Things can be much worse than they look. You have to factor that in. Remember that with your leadership. They might be compensating really well, but that doesn't mean all is well. November 6th of 20, right in the middle of those five difficult months,
2: it was one of our darkest days. I was feeling pretty low.
0: But God was with us. He showed us that in two ways that night. The first one, Wes and Karen, Karen Sensenick, friends of ours, and their family stopped by with a gift basket. Sat in our living room, we stayed distanced. But their visit was a monumental encourage to, encouragement to us. It was worth far more than the chocolate and
2: crackers in that basket. The fact they simply came over and cared. But around 8.30 that night, three Stoltzfus sisters
0: live about a half hour from here. They showed up on our doorstep and sang us a lullaby on our porch. Soft be thy slumber, sweet be thy dreams. Two years later, I can't talk about it without crying. Words fail me to
2: describe how much their care meant. Big,
0: strong leaders are more vulnerable than you think they are. And a simple lullaby sung in three-part harmony on a front porch at 830 at night just might change their darkest moment and give them hope to carry on.
2: Perhaps these lessons in leadership are old hat for you, and that's okay.
0: I'm going to stop there. I could go on and talk about the fact leaders are sleep-deprived, talk about trust capital, talk about how God works to frustrate our idols, the thing we hold most dear, be that freedom or wealth or success or popularity, God's going to ask us to die to that. I've had to learn that character assassination and gossip are sin. Then I cut down the people that disagree with me and are doing things differently than I think they should. But that gossip and character assassination is sin. And even if I'm right, perhaps, I still don't have to kill them to prove it. Because in our own way, just war theory comes much closer to our Anabaptist circles than we'd like to admit sometimes. I can talk about how forgiveness has to be a daily habit for leaders. But we're out of time for this morning, so we'll stop there. I'll turn it back over to you, Sam.
1: Thank you, Brother Ryan, for that. Um, share, having the courage and the humility to share uh, some of those difficult things that you did, I really appreciated that. Um, we're going to open it up for some questions and comments. Um, so yeah, before we get into that, um, that first point you gave about prepare- disaster preparedness, that isn't something that is front and center in a lot of people's minds in daily life or even in organizations from my experience. Anyway, um, I finished, I just finished listening to a book by Chris Hadfield, who is an astronaut, a Canadian astronaut.
2: And. He made the statement that
1: all through the book, sweat the small stuff. You know, how could you be an astronaut, strap a rocket to your back, go to space and not be scared that that's going to happen? You know, the things are going to blow up or something terrible. And he said, sweat the small stuff. And that was a strange concept to me. Um, we always hear don't sweat the small stuff. And. But can you can you speak to that at all?
0: Yes, details are critically important, and it was at the Beachy minister's meetings a year and a half two two years ago, maybe Stan Nisley from Kansas preached an excellent leadership leadership message. One of his points was the job of leadership is to bear the heavier burden to protect your people mm-hmm. and some people view leadership as the nine to five corner office with plenty of time for golf. And he said the real, real leaders are those who pair away the trim away even the good things of life to give space for the better things. And that, that bearing a heavier burden for the sake of my people is how I serve my people. And part of that is details and preparation. That other people, I hope this doesn't sound too cocky, but that other people have the luxury of not worrying about. Mm-hmm. My resident families don't worry about how much fuel is in my generator tank. That's my job. And before a storm rolls in, I check in with my, with my maintenance director, and what's our fuel tank at? I know it burns 1% an hour. That that snowstorm, we went from 96% on our fuel to 66%. We know how much fuel it burns. I know how much fuel is in that tank. I'm on the phone with, with the fuel company. I'm going to need more fuel at this point. And so, yes, sweat the small stuff. That is the definition of excellent leadership of somebody who has all the boxes checked. And people will be well cared for because of your service. If you don't believe me, go camping without a flipper uh, spatula or without trash bags or something. I mean, little details become mighty important. Put a tiny rock in your shoe, and you'll quickly see that little things make huge differences.
1: Mm-hmm. That is one thing I was impressed with is all of these points that you made um, virtually carry over into, I know we might not be leaders of, organizations or have a bunch of people under us but most a lot of us are fathers leaders of the home um you know being prepared communicating um making the hard decisions you know all of these things are this is good for for any position of leadership
2: all right uh do any of you have any questions or comments
3: Uh, Brother Ryan, you and I have known each other for a long time. I really appreciated this message. Written all over it was servanthood. And Dale Hasey made the interesting observation that the word leadership is never used in the New Testament. Leaders are always referred to as servants. And one of the best messages I ever heard on this subject had as its theme, if you want to uh outsell it was uh, talk about salesmanship if you want to outsell people you have to outserve them and so that's really what uh, you emphasize through the whole thing and of course that's what jesus taught that it's all about servanthood
0: let him be your minister i didn't talk about the fact uh, two years through this i was part of faith builders servant institute program for leaders and that was the I mean, yes, that's the name of the program, but that was the central emphasis from our first meeting to our last that leadership is about serving. Let him be your minister. The word is servant.
4: Hey, brother Ryan, uh, Kent here. I spent, uh, 12 years as a naval officer and they teach lots of leadership in the military. One of the things they teach is that uh, you know, if you don't obey direct orders, people die. Uh, we can't really communicate that e- as easily into the what we call the civilian world. Uh, people don't always understand. And so my question to you is, how much, as a leader, have, have you faced with the question of how hard is it to make somebody understand decisions? And how important is it to make somebody understand decisions?
2: Well, that's that's an interesting interesting uh,
0: question. By personality, I'm driven to make you understand. Uh, that, that that's important to me that you you that you get it. Um, I'm going to go out on a limb here and say I can be okay if you don't get it, so long as you obey that sounds really totalitarian. I don't care what you think, just do it. Um, because
2: that that can produce an obedience that's not healthy either. There's, there's, there's no,
0: there's no teacher quite like experience. Um, Howard Hendricks, I believe it's Howard Hendricks, um, organized a camping trip and, you know, told the guys in this class, he, You plan it all, take it all. And they plan to make pancakes on this camping trip and didn't take along the spatula. And they're out there trying to fry pancakes over an open fire and turning them with sticks. He said, they they were food, but they weren't pancakes. He said, I promise you none of them is ever going to forget a spatula again. Um, there, there's no teacher like experience. How do you get people to understand? Good luck. <laughs> um how important yeah, I, I don't have a great answer to that. How how important is it that people understand I don't have a categorical answer for that. I'd be interested to hear somebody like John or some of you older guys here weigh in on that. How important is it that a leader that you, that people understand what's going on? Um I mean I, I use I use the example of greasing equipment. I, out of high school, I worked for an excavator, and this guy was a big proponent of greasing equipment. I mean, he'd get a call on the backhoe, and he'd take the call on his phone, and he would throw me the grease gun out the backhoe window, and extend the the boom all the way out, and I'd grease every zerk on the on the boom of the hoe. He didn't send me to class to learn the value of grease in a bearing. He didn't. He he didn't preach lectures. On friction and bearings and bushings, he said, "Grease the hoe." And with time, I saw the value of greasing, particularly when bearings and bushings failed and screeched and drove you nuts, and then you have to drive them out with a sledgehammer and replace them. There, there's no teacher about the value of grease quite like the experience. Um, now, in some things, we can't afford—we can't afford the experience of letting it go badly. Or people die you're exactly right, and sometimes the stakes are high enough we i mean it's it's more than just a a fried bushing so i'm not, I'm not quite sure how to well answer your question, but that's that's uh very interesting. Anybody else want to weigh in on that?
3: Somebody has said the school of experience is the best school. The problem is its colors are black and blue.
0: <laughs> yes, John, I remember you saying that exactly, black and blue.
2: I no, I just appreciated. I mine. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, in the Tony, I'm. You can go ahead. <laughs> so uh, I do. I do construction work,
5: and I it's. I've made plenty of mistakes, and. So when I'm trying to explain a process to my guys, I'm like, so here's what you got to do. Because if you don't do this, this will happen. And, you know, we don't really want to have a $5,000 mistake, whatever the case is. But, you know, invariably, the way you learn it is when you do it yourself and you make the mistake and then you remember it. Um, and so in construction, it's not a life at stake. It's probably more money than anything else. Uh, but, yeah, so but that that is how you learn. I did appreciate your comment, too, about um having values. uh I think you and I have had discussions about having things laid out and expectations and job descriptions and who does what et cetera et cetera um but yeah, to have a value to have those things spelled out it's kind of a hard thing to do in our circles It's just just do the next right thing, and um
2: I see great value in in that. So thank you for that point Thank you.
1: The question came in on the chat. Um, where in the Bible does it talk about subordinates needing to understand um, why commands are given? Uh, I, I think the, the it's not actually in Scripture that you need to understand why. Um, I guess some of that would be depending on the situation that you're in.
0: That's an interesting, interesting observation. I want to say this carefully and charitably. But we have, I've noticed, a distinct difference in the response of staff to unpalatable decisions based on the church structure they come from. And again, this is broad brush, and and I want to be charitable. But the more hierarchical, more stronger structure church they come from, The response tended to be, I don't like it, but I'm here to support and submit. I'm not happy about it, but we want to be supportive. The more congregational brotherhood, everything's done by consensus church people came from, those were the ones that tended to struggle more with decisions that they didn't have a voice in and that they didn't understand. And again, this is, this is, this is broad brush here. And I was sharing this with, with a, uh, with a brother of mine and, and he said, absolutely. He said, she said, that's what's killing us is we've never learned how to submit to things we don't like. He said, absolutely. He said, that's, and again, I'm not saying one style of church administration is completely right and the other is completely wrong. Um, but it, it is, Interesting to me that
2: that the people who have come from a very structured
0: church structure did seem to know how to submit to things they didn't like. And then one staff he's like, "Well, if we had had you know if we had had a, a say in this decision, we'd be able to support it better." And I asked, I said, "Do you think the federal government asked me my opinion? Do you think the Virginia Department of Health?" has even remotely thought about this small nursing home in rural Madison County. No, they said do it. I said, I didn't get a, a say in this decision either. Um And so I, I want to be careful. I want to be charitable and want to lead people, not beat people. But that, that point is made that, yeah, Scripture does not talk about obey what you understand and, and like. John, I see you're digging at your Bible. I want to I want to see where you're going here.
3: Uh Proverbs four uh seven. Wisdom is the principal thing, therefore get wisdom, and with all thy getting, get understanding. But it's really interesting. The context of that passage is listen to your dad. And uh and then after you have listened to your dad, you might begin to understand. So I think we are to get understanding, but the best understanding comes through obedience because there are many things we have to do before we understand. So the Bible does encourage us to get understanding, but it emphasizes getting wisdom, which is basically learned by precept. You just do what you're told to do, and then you begin to understand. So the Bible does call us to uh, understand, but it doesn't tell us to, uh, that we have to
4: understand before we obey. And I'll say to John and to Ryan, um, I think it helps what Ryan said then about that. If we're looking for blind obedience, we have to have the values with which we can be able to pull from for that obedience. If you don't have values, then you're going to have a a lot of sinful fleshly people
2: just digging in their heels.
0: And, And we said many times over COVID did not create our carnality. COVID didn't make us carnal, didn't make us selfish, didn't make us individualistic. It didn't make us a whole bunch of things. It simply did a great job at revealing what I already
2: was. So,
6: Ryan, I have a question for you. How did you um navigate? So, obviously, you're in a different position than the majority of us were, where you're heading a healthcare facility and obeying the government was – it had your pocketbook <laughs> twisted around your arm. You know what I'm saying? Like you, you didn't have a choice. Like, don't obey, we're gonna take your pocketbook away from you. So obviously, you were part of a church also that probably didn't take it as serious as you did. So how how do you live in both worlds? Like, in in one sense, you're you're going to work and you have to do everything the letter of the law. And I don't know your church personally, but I would be willing to. Assume if it was like normal North America church that it didn't operate on the same premises and principles. You know what I'm saying? Like you're almost in, like did that, was that part of what messed with you so hard was because all these different worlds colliding together? I mean, obviously I don't work in healthcare, so I felt, you know, maybe some pity for that situation, but it sure didn't affect me. All right. Do you have anything to, to add to that?
2: Where shall I start? <laughs> no,
0: I, Vaughn, you just, you just nailed what I see. Corwin was on here. You can talk to Kirvan. You can talk to Chris Lowen. You can talk to John Waldron. Talk, talk to any of us in healthcare. That has been a particular burden the past three years. When the people that we know and love and trust
2: violate some of that trust. And, and again, I want to be charitable. I want to, I, I
0: understand that people see things differently. But at times it's felt like the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Um, And I, and I want to be, I want to be careful and I, I have lots to learn. But that was particularly difficult in our situation specifically, Oak grove oak grove um so in the beginning, yeah, we shut down but we did video church for a couple of months, and so we just had our own services here and it was it was actually kind of nice it was it was really bonding it was it was a great experience here on campus. We just sort of yeah basically closed it off the road, and we were all in our cozy little community here. Um, it was truly sweet. that, That part was really nice. Um, we met on the ball field over the summer. Once the weather started to cool, well, or what, what Southerners thought was the weather getting cooler. Uh, the Northerner within me said, Oh, we've got a long way to go till this is called cool. Um, they went back inside. We sat every other bench for a while. We, if there was a, if there was a modification, we tried it for the longest time, the longest time, for a while. Um, Mountain View simply met in the basement, used a video camera and a projector in the basement. I tell you, video church is barely church. It's, it's a burden. It's, ter- it's a terrible idea. Um, technology is wonderful. We're meeting together this morning via zoom. But, oh, video church just barely qualifies as church. Um, Name the modification we tried it. In general, if I were to sum up Oak Grove's response, and this might be a little bit broad brush, but it was, you do what you feel is right. Some people did absolutely nothing. Some of us wore masks as long as it was required. Some people tried various things i would say specifically masking a church was a was a maybe 25% minority for a while and eventually petered out to about 10% um
2: in in general
0: i didn't have to violate my conscience to go to church like some of my brothers did um and 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 if you listen to their stories Again, the whole submission to your brotherhood, there's some benefits to be learned there that perhaps if I hadn't laid down some of my rights, I, I would have been farther ahead sometimes. I don't know. That That's one thing I don't know what to do with. I don't know how to look at. But my children wore masks to school when most did not, because that's what the governor said. Um,
2: th- that... That
0: dichotomy between my life and my church was particularly difficult. Um, I will happily say that I don't see monumental lingering effects from it currently in our brotherhood here. Um, we we see things differently, but we we'll get along okay. Yeah, some of that I don't know where to go with, but but Vaughn, you you laid your finger on. One of the central difficulties of the whole thing.
6: Yeah, the real difficulty is going to be if we get some kind of round two with this kind of exercise because the lines are already drawn like they've never been drawn before. And, um, yeah, I'm thankful our church navigated as a whole and as a brotherhood, we stuck together. Um, whether we, we didn't, we didn't probably do it the way you did it, but like I'd say we, for the most part, managed to, to survive together, but yeah, it's been, it's been a crazy couple of years and I'm glad I wasn't in your shoes, but thanks for sharing.
2: So maybe this is taking us off topic here down the bunny trail, but to continue down this trail.
5: Um, does a church leader have a different calling or a different response to this crisis your your primary response was the nursing home um, a medical response um, my primary response is a spiritual response um, I, I i was I was diametrically opposed to myself I could argue either side of the deal you know We need to wear a mask it's required and then the other part of me said but we're a church and we need brotherhood and we need to come together and if we perish we perish we people need each other um
2: is is there a difference in our leadership or or would you do you get my question
0: (laughs) My opinion, yes, you have different responsibility, different focus. Absolutely. Unquestioned. Um, I, I had lunch with a former deacon of mine here recently. And we were discussing this and he said. He said, I wish things had been differently. He said, I'm convinced. We could have followed our conscience and followed the mandates. And we could have gotten through it. We didn't have to
2: violate either. He said, but somehow the discussion
0: got pitted against each other where one was going to lose. He said, I'm convinced if we if we just sat down with an open mind, we could have done better. Um. He said what I've been thinking. There'd be a great deal of creativity. And, And I'm not saying, Tony, that if i perish i perish
2: response is totally wrong um
0: yeah i i, I disagree with that but uh, again yeah you know, like like i said i wasn't in the position of a you know lead pastor trying to trying to hold the church together i met with a group of staff recently um to have a a day of discussion and, and talk about our experiences. And one of them said, he said, it felt at the time, it felt like our physical health were prioritized, but our mental and spiritual health were neglected. He said, looking back, I see all you did in trying to protect mental and spiritual health I didn't realize what all was going on then, but looking back, I see it now. And he said further, I realize looking back that your mental health was in worse shape than ours, and I was too self-centered to see it. I I, I don't know. I I, I th- that's something for a great discussion point, Tony.
2: Um. Yeah. I, I I'm I'm I, w- I would love to sit down and have the discussion. Yeah, thank you for weighing. I'm
5: not saying we, we should ignore the, the physical. I'm not, I'm not saying that at all. Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah, just how to, um, yeah, it was a tough spot and, and our selfishness came through. So
2: yeah,
1: huge. Yeah. Thanks for weighing into that. That's, uh, some deep waters there that, um, would take some discernment and wisdom. To wade into um, there is there was something that came through clear on your talk, but I, I feel like it bears um, being underlined. And what would you say is the the most paramount attribute or or key element to being successful in a leader? Um, just leaders across the board. What would you say would be the, um, the
2: greatest attribute that they could have? I'm not talking about a character, character trait, or something like that. But I was going to say the desire to serve. Mm -hmm. Um, That, yeah, it's it's
0: what John started with. Mm -hmm. That to be a leader is to be a servant. Is to carry, like I say, Stan Nisley's. Is to carry the greater burden to lose
2: sleep, to work harder, to carry the greater burden in the
0: service of others. Um, and, and again, it has pitfalls, and there's plenty of people who have flamed out because they didn't know when to call it quits and to delegate and all those sort of things. But
2: that, that's, it, humility, being able to admit where
0: I'm wrong, and genuinely wanting to serve is, is, is the only way because, yeah, the, the schedule and the perks and the pay, um, well, you know, it's not going to quite do it for you.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. Um, I think this is an aspect of being a, a follower of Christ in leadership is the, the service aspect. And this is how we do it different than the Gentiles to use, um, terms that Christ uses is we, uh, service and humility is looked on as leadership in the kingdom of heaven. Um, And I think some of the, even some of the more insightful leaders of the world realize that it comes with, with humility to be an effective leader. So I think um, we'll wrap this up. Great discussion. I really appreciate everyone who, uh, participated in this and for you ryan for being willing to weigh into this and um share in humility and share from your experience um i really appreciate that um would you actually yeah i'll admit we'll pray and then i'll make some uh closing announcements but would you close us off in prayer here
2: sure let's pray. our father
0: i thank you for this morning and the time we could spend together. Lord, I thank you for your example of service, of
2: leadership. God, thank you for the privilege of being entrusted with your people, with your most prized possession. Lord, I thank you for your promise that
0: what the day demands, you'll give the strength for. Lord, David said he'd never seen the righteous forsaken. You've promised that seed time and harvest, golden heat, day and night won't cease. Lord, every morning the sun comes up and we can be reminded again of your promise, of your faithfulness. You have not a shadow of turning. That nothing in the world, no disaster, no hurricane, no tweet,
2: nothing can remotely shake your character. Lord, thank you for those promises. Thank you that you promised to be enough. So, God, I pray for each of the leaders here this morning.
0: And whatever you want us to face today, God, may we face it in your strength and not ours. May your kingdom come and not ours. May your will be done and not ours. God, may we give you the glory. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Amen.
1: Thank you. In two weeks' time, we'll have another meeting here at 6 o'clock, and we are beginning a series called Sacred Writings. Um, it'll be talks about the origin of scriptures um, and different discussions about the scriptures and how we have the scripture The Bible that we have today. And the first talk is called The Revelation of Jesus Christ given by Greg Weaver. And that'll be in two weeks, same place, same time. So you're all welcome back for that. I'm really anticipating the this series that we're launching on the Bible. So God bless you all for joining us this morning. Uh, It was a pleasure being here with you. Thank you, Brother Ryan, for sharing your experience and your thoughts about leadership. And uh, it has been a tremendous blessing. So God bless you for that. And God be with you all as you serve in your part of the kingdom today. Go with God.
0: As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend.